Leviticus is in fact where we're going to be tonight. Um, it's nice being a 20-something and preaching out of Leviticus because you don't really need an introduction. Um, I'm sure most of you are just kind of sitting there widening, watching and waiting. How's this going to go? Um, and for a lot of us, this might be the first time that we've ever been in a, a formal uh, Bible study or sermon context where somebody's um, preaching out of Leviticus. I even had one friend in the last few weeks when I, I mentioned that I was preaching Leviticus. Um, their first response was, well, how are you going to keep that interesting? Um, fair enough, and we'll endeavor to do that. Um, Leviticus is a book that we don't really understand. It's full of laws, rituals, judgments. Um, we don't experience most of these on a day-to-day basis, and a lot of it seems really weird. Um, but because of that, that foreignness, that unfamiliarity, the book as a whole has gained a bad reputation. Um, it's a place where reading plans go to die. And for a lot of us, um, it might be one of those books that we've never really thought about, maybe even never read. And that's okay. Um, hopefully after tonight, that'll change. Because if we believe, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, if we believe that, then we believe that Leviticus is useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And so as we look at the beginning of this book and and delve into some of its main themes and contributions that it makes to Scripture, one of the goals that we'll have um, is to learn to think of Leviticus as Christian Scripture, as God's Word for you today. And something that will is actually helpful for us and precious to us in our daily lives. But how do we do that? Well, tonight we're hopefully going to do that um, and at least begin that process. We're going to do that in some unconventional ways. Leviticus is is not a book we're used to, and so we're going to have some unconventional approaches. Um, Firstly, the size of the passage that we're doing is going to be unconventional. Um, The reading from 1, 1 through Uh, Four is a bit of a tease. We're actually going to be doing the first six chapters of the book. Um, We'll also uh, be taking somewhat of an unconventional style in that we're going to be starting in chapters three and four and then going back to chapter, or sorry, starting in chapters four to six and going back to chapters one through three. Um, And hopefully, as we get into the meat of the text, hopefully as we get into the passage, there will be a a method to the madness that comes out. Um, Again, The goal in all of this is to understand Leviticus a little bit better, to understand how it fits in Scripture, to understand how Leviticus is the Word of God for you today. But before we go any further, we also want to do a bit of ground clearing. Um, One of the biggest things we can do in reading Leviticus is understand how it fits into the framework of Scripture and the story of redemption. Leviticus is part of a larger literary product. It's the, the third and central book of the Torah, or the Pentateuch. You see, the first five books of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible, are really all one big book. They're all authored by Moses. They're all one literary unit. That's really what Pentateuch means. It's Penta, five, tuke, book. It's a five-part book. And this book tells the story of God's people from creation in Genesis 1 to the edge of the promised land by the end of Deuteronomy. At this point... When we begin Leviticus, we've, we've had the story of Genesis and Exodus, which are probably the two books in the Pentateuch you're most familiar with. 
right? In Genesis, we get the account of creation and God's early fellowship with humanity in the Garden of Eden. It's a perfect mountainous temple-like sanctuary set apart from the rest of the world. But it's a paradise that's quickly lost in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve ate of the one fruit that they had been forbidden. God warned Adam that if they were to eat of it, they would surely die. And eat they did. So our first parents were driven east, descending from that holy mountain out of the garden, and were sealed off from the sanctuary of divine presence and fellowship. Despite hints of hope and glimmers of godliness seen in people like Noah, Abraham, and Joseph, the rest of the book of Genesis really records a compounding story of sin and death. Time and time again, mankind is driven further east and further away from the fellowship of God. They descend further and further into death and chaos. The book finally ends with the chosen family sojourning in Egypt. Whereas Genesis began with humanity in perfect fellowship with their God, walking and talking with him in the garden, it ends with humanity fleeing famine in the desertscape of Egypt, which in many ways becomes an anti-type of Eden. In Eden, where man walked and worshipped with God, Egypt is a place where Israel is wandering, and the reader is wondering what happens next. Cue the book of Exodus. Nearly 400 years after the end of Genesis, God begins to work again in the pages of scripture. And it begins with something of a dramatized undoing of Genesis. God begins to reveal himself and teaching his people who their God is, drawing them out of the pit of chaos and leading them further up. He reveals his name to Moses at the burning bush. Through the plagues, he reveals himself to the world. The divine deliverance, the parting of the Red Sea, providing manna and quail, and the giving of the law at Sinai, All of this, God is recreating a people and leading himself and teaching them of who he is. And one of the chief ways that he does this is in the construction of the tabernacle. Nearly 15 full chapters are given to its planning and building. And so if you've made it through that, then you're in a good good standing. You have a good idea of what's happening when you get to Leviticus. It's a tent that in its construction is full of of remarkable imagery um, and symbolism. It's evoking Eden. It's mapped on the heavenly realms. It's a tent where God will, will dwell and have fellowship with his people. And in a moment of wonder and grandeur that we, we can scarcely imagine, the glory of God descends. And in Exodus 40, After all the instructions have been given, after all the instructions have been followed, the tent is built. God's glory, the Shekinah, dwells with his people. But, if we read closely, that's not the end of the story. You see, in Exodus 40, verse 35, we we see a glaring problem. It reads, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. Moses wasn't able to enter the tent. Can you imagine their frustration? We spent 15 chapters reading through it to understand what's going on. They spent a year building this tabernacle. And after God's finally dwelled with them, the whole point of this exile experience, this whole point, or Exodus experience, this whole point of God redeeming them from Exodus, revealing his law at Sinai, was that he could dwell with them. And now that it's built and God's there, Moses can't enter. And the implicit question is, if Moses can't enter, then who can? Exodus leaves us with a question. The tabernacle is a dwelling place, but not yet a meeting place. And so now we're finally back to Leviticus. 
that core central book of the Pentateuch that re- represents the, the pinnacle of Moses' work. It records the divine instruction that will, in time, address the question that Exodus leaves us with. It will, in time, show us how a holy God can dwell with a sinful people and how a sinful people can approach a holy God. The book as a whole answers this in a sort of ascent and descent. It's as if, with Genesis being a descent into sin and death, and Exodus being the slow climb up out of that pit, that Leviticus now enters a new sort of holy time. There's no geography mentioned, there's no time mentioned. It's as if, in holy time, the people of God are ascending to the throne room of God. And they ascend in stages. You first see the offerings of the people, then you see the role of the priests and the purity of the nation, with the great day of atonement standing at the core of the book. It then descends back the other way with the purity of the nation, the priests, and then the people. This this structured mirroring with a centerpiece is an ancient device that authors would have used. um, is often called a chiasm. And this generally will frame um, our approach tonight and any future sermons on the the book. Following Greg's lead, I won't call it a a sermon series, but we'll we'll see where we go. Tonight, we'll examine the first stage of this ascent and offering um, the offerings of the people in chapters 1 through 6. And we see that the first step to solve the problem that Exodus leaves us with, the first step for a sinful people to take in order to worship their holy God, is a step of offerings and sacrifices. There are five of these offerings in total, and like we said initially, we'll tackle these a bit out of order to get a better sense of how it all fits together. We'll actually start in 4 to 6, looking at the sin and guilt offerings, where we'll see that before anything else can happen, sin must be dealt with. There must be an offering made for atonement. Then we'll return to the chapters 1 through 3, and we'll look at the three other offerings. Look at the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering. And there we'll see that in addition to an offering being made for atonement, there also needs to be an offering made for fellowship. So first, let's look at the offering made for atonement. For God's people to be made right with their Lord, that is, for a sinful people to approach him in worship, sin has to be dealt with. After all, it's sin that drove Adam and Eve out of the garden, and it's sin that's keeping Moses out of the tent. And to deal with sin, our passage tells us that there needs to be a vicarious offering made for atonement. That is... There needs to be an offering made in the stead of or in substitution for the worshiper. That is, uh, for example, we all might um, live vicariously through social media a little bit. Somebody else's life that's on social media, but we're partaking in a little bit. Or I might live vicariously through Liam when he gets a new book added to his library and I borrow it. It's his book, but I get to partake in it a little bit. That's what's needed for sin. It's a vicarious offering. There's a, the worshiper himself is not being killed, so the animal is, but the worshiper partakes in that benefit. The worshiper needs to make an offering to deal with his sins, to put him back to the right relationship before God. And we actually see this emphasis on, on the vicarious or substitutionary note of the offerings um, throughout all six chapters that we're dealing with. Nine times in these six chapters, there are instructions given that at each of the offerings, there is a a ritual recognition of the vicarious role that this animal is playing. So, for example, look at with me at chapter 4, verse 4. 
It reads, He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. That is, in each of these offerings, regardless of the specific intention, it begins with a symbolic recognition that what is happening to the animal is in his stead. In fact, the worshiper actually kills the animal. Not only is he putting his hand on the head of the animal, but he is also doing the slaughtering. This offering um, is visceral and gross and would have put blood on the offerer as well as the surrounding area. It's meant to ritually and symbolically identify the offerer with the sacrifice that he's making. And in the chapters before us, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, the purpose of these two offerings are specifically focused on atonement. So these animals that are being offered in the guilt and sin offerings are being offered to make atonement for sin. Ten times in these three chapters, so nine times the substitutionary note is made throughout all the chapters, but ten times in these three chapters, there's an emphasis made on atonement. Moses repeats time and time again the phrase that the priest shall make atonement for him and he will be given. We see that in chapter 4, verse 20, in chapter 4, verse 26, in verse 31, and so on and so forth. The priest will make atonement and he will be forgiven. That is, the results of the sin and guilt offering, the point of these in the Levitical system of offerings, is to deal with sin. But what is atonement? What's that word mean, and why is that accomplished by the offering of animals? How does killing a bull or a goat deal with man's sin? Well, the word atonement is is kind of a unique theological word. It's an old English word that got put into the place of a Hebrew word that can sometimes just literally be translated as cover. Um, So on just a strictly a word-based level, atonement is making covering or covering sin in some way. But often it gets used in in broader, more specific um, ways. So, for example, one definition from one scholar is that atonement is God's work on sinners' behalf to reconcile them to himself. That is, atonement is the divine activity that confronts and resolves the problem of sin so that the people may enjoy full fellowship with God. Atonement is a divine work done on our behalf with the main goal of reestablishing fellowship. And we see a lot of that pretty clearly in our text. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 1. The Lord speaks to Moses, right? It says, and the Lord spoke to Moses. And then he proceeds to give him instructions. This whole system of offerings, this whole system of laws, is God's idea. He is the one that was grieved by sin. He is the one that we sinned against. And so it is God's work, the whole book of Leviticus is God's work of solving that problem that we're left with at the end of Exodus. But not only is it God's work, but it's also God's work on our behalf. In our passage tonight, we can see that um, this is where that idea of vicarious or substitutionary offering comes in that we just mentioned a bit ago. The system is God's idea, and it makes a way for our sins to be dealt with without us having to pay the consequences. From the garden, mankind has known that the wages of sin is death. 
but instead the Lord allows an animal to be substituted, dying on our behalf and taking away that punishment. The wages of sin is still death, and Hebrews tells us there's no forgiveness of sins without the blood. And yet, the Lord is gracious, and we don't have to die for our sins. Now, the animal cannot just be any animal. In this this pastoral agrarian society, there would have been thousands and thousands of animals. But the offerings that were acceptable before the Lord weren't just any animal. They were spotless, blameless, whole animals. It had to be perfect in whatever way a goat can be perfect. And that's part of the logic, the the trade-off that a blameless, spotless animal can stand in for us, can bear our sins before the Lord. Atonement is a divine work, and it's on our behalf. And finally, the purpose of atonement, the purpose of God's work on our behalf, is to reconcile man to himself, to reestablish fellowship. Now, this is important, and frankly, is a thing that I think gets lost in a lot of Reformed circles. Um, That is, the doctrine of atonement, or penal substitution, the fancy word, isn't an end in and of itself. And when we spend a lot of time focusing on that and nailing that down, sometimes we miss the fact that atonement, God's dealing with sin, has an end of restoring fellowship. Sin is not God's primary focus when he's dealing with you, Christian. When he enters into relationship with you, sin is part of his relationship with you. It is something that he deals with so that he can have fellowship with you and delight in you as a son or a daughter. God's ultimate end in dealing with sin for the Israelites and for us is so that we can have fellowship with him. That's the emphasis that needs to be maintained, and that's the emphasis that's seen in Leviticus. In this whole system of offerings, the five that we've mentioned, two of them, these two that we're starting with, are to deal with sin. And don't get me wrong, sin has to be dealt with before fellowship can be had. We have to be in right legal standing with God. We have to be justified. But part of the reason that we're starting with these two sacrifices is that these two don't fall in the regular uh, ritual liturgy of Israel. These two are exceptional offerings made when sin corrupts somebody. The first three, the three that we'll return to in a second, are the core offerings of Israel. The main point of the offerings of Israel is to establish fellowship with God. But he makes a way that sin can be forgiven, that sin can be atoned for, so that they can achieve fellowship. The sin offerings and the guilt offerings are made vicariously, and they accomplish the forgiveness of sins. They're made so that man can be justified, and the next steps can happen that God can reestablish fellowship with his people. They are offerings made for atonement. Now secondly, going back to the chapter 1 through 3, having looked at the two offerings made for atonement, we can now look at the offerings made for fellowship. Remember that we noted in the case of the sin and guilt offerings that when a sin was committed, an animal was sacrificed in a substitutionary way, vicarious, making provision for the sinner. Instead of the person paying the penalty of the sin, which was death, the spotless animal was given instead. Well, now moving back to chapters 1 through 3, we see that that emphasis continues. 
but that the ultimate end, the restoration of fellowship with the man, with the people, is emphasized, is brought to the forefront. And so offered for fellowship, how does this happen? Well, in chapters 1 through 3, there's a series of three offerings that are given. There's burnt offerings in chapter 1, grain offerings in chapter 2, and peace offerings in chapter 3. These offerings each have a distinct element to them and accomplish a slightly different purpose, but in the end, they form the regular liturgical life of Israel and bring the Israelite into fellowship with God. First, in chapter 1, the burnt offering. The burnt offering is unique. That is the only offering that the entirety of the animal is given up and burnt. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 9, in the second half of the verse. It reads, And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering pleasing to the Lord. And again in the second half of verse 17, The priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, pleasing aroma to the Lord. And all of the other offerings, there's a part that's held back, that either the priest gets to eat or the offerer himself. Only in the burnt offering is the whole animal consumed. It's an important symbolic starting place for the rest of this process. It represents the worshiper being wholly devoted to the Lord, not withholding anything, but giving over his entire person. Having dealt with sin in the sin and guilt offerings, the worshiper would have been legally justified before the Lord. But then, in response, the worshiper can turn in this burnt offering and devote himself wholly to the Lord, symbolically being sanctified by and to the Lord. Secondly, in chapter 2, the grain offering is described. And now this offering is unique um, in that it's the only offering not made by an animal. It's made of uh, something from the fields and is usually offered alongside either the burnt or the peace offering. Instead of being a gift from the herd of the flock, it's a gift from the field and combined with the other offerings symbolically shows that not only does the worshiper devote and sanctify their entire being to the Lord, but he also devotes and sanctifies their entire labors, their entire works. In the burnt and grain offerings, sanctification, devotion to the Lord is accomplished. They are recognizing that their sin has been taken care of by the Lord, and they are recommitting themselves to fellowship with God. These two are then finally followed by the peace or fellowship offering in chapter 3. This offering itself stands out in several ways. First, it's actually the only one of these offerings that's described as a sacrifice. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 3. His offering is a sacrifice of a peace offering. If he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. This is the first time, in chapter 3, it's the first time in Leviticus that the word sacrifice is used. Um, And throughout Leviticus, when the word sacrifice is used, it's usually used to refer to this peace offering or fellowship offering. And that might seem weird to us. Aren't all of these sacrifices? What's the difference between this one and all of the others? Well, in some sense, yeah. They're all sacrifices in that they all involve the act of of killing an animal in some sort of ritual worship that is lifted up and offered to the Lord. But they aren't sacrifices in that they're not necessarily optional. 
right? So when we think of the word sacrifice most often in day-to-day usage, and when I use the word sacrifice, I'm usually talking about giving up something that I don't have to, but I'm choosing to give it up to gain some other good. I sacrifice my morning coffee to save a little bit of money. I can still do that, but I don't have to. All of the other sacrifices are required. They're fundamentally necessary for the Israelite to maintain their worship with the Lord. But instead, the peace offering is an optional offering and is usually given out of joy and thanksgiving at the work accomplished by the preceding offerings. It's the the pinnacle of the offertory system in Israel. The worshiper, through the guilt and sin offerings in chapters 4 through 6, has dealt with sin, being justified, and having been restored to right legal standing before God, and has, through the burnt and grain offerings, entered into God's presence, symbolically redevoting themselves to the Lord as well as their labors. And because of these great mercies that God has made up way for them to deal with their sin, the worshiper is invited to offer another offering, an offering that he actually partakes in. And this is the second way, really interestingly, that this offering stands out from the other ones. Um, these details were actually given in chapter 7 later on. But the, uh, the worshiper, having given his offering, um, and certain portions of that being taken by the priests, then receives the rest of this offering back to himself and would have two days to eat the offering, burning any leftovers that were left on the, sep- on the third day. The symbolism and significance here is amazing and more than we can go into now, but in some, the worshiper is quite literally invited to taste and see that the Lord is good, to symbolically share in a consecrated meal with the Lord. And this is really the height of the ritualistic ascent that an ordinary Israelite would achieve. He has been justified before the Lord. His sins have been forgiven, and he's been sanctified, devoting himself to the Lord. His entire person and his entire labors. And now in this shared meal, taste something of being united to God. Now, in trying to bring all of this together, I want you to notice two things. That in these six chapters of laws, in these six chapters of offerings that we're really unfamiliar with and would probably like to skip most often, there's actually, they serve to accomplish a wide range of purposes. And in doing so, there are a wide range of provisions that are made. That is to say that God wants to address all the needs of all of his people. It's in some ways um, this that makes this initial section, these first six chapters of Leviticus, so tedious. That there's repetition. It's first the animals from the flocks, then the animals from the herds, then there's birds, and there's all of these different things, and it happens with each of these five offerings. But what it serves is to teach us is that in these offerings, God is offering a path back to him in worship. Rather than just being rote law or meaningless practice, these offerings actually serve to symbolically justify, sanctify, and unite the worshiper to God. And they're given in detail so that anyone in Israel can satisfy the requirements. Right? Have you ever asked why there are so many different options that they have to give sacrifice? You can offer a bull from the herd. You can offer a a goat from the flock. You can offer a pigeon. Why are all of these different? What distinguishes each of these offerings? Well, in a pastoral or agrarian society, 
Um, a bull is a lot more expensive than a pigeon. That's sort of intuitive. Bulls are larger than pigeons. They cost more. Um, and not everyone in society would have had animals from the herd or the flock. Not everyone would have been able to offer one of these animals or afford it. And so in Leviticus and in the law of God, there's a divinely ordained scale of offerings. It's kind of like the idea of a student discount. Places like museums or concert halls offer some sort of discount to students who could normally not afford the normal entry fee. They don't want to give it away for free. They want to have some sort of profit. But they're also just as concerned with making sure that all of everyone has access to come. They want to instill a love of art or of music. There's still personal expense. It still costs something, but it's proportional. The students pay the proverbial pigeon while everyone else pays in bulls. These offerings required personal expense. In Israel, you had to give something to stand in your stead. There had to be something to substitute for you. But they weren't meant to be a financial burden. God wanted his people to participate. He wanted to cleanse them of sin, justifying them. He wanted them to devote themselves to him entirely and be sanctified. And he wanted to be united with them in fellowship, sharing together in that sacred meal. We began in the intro, tracing the history of redemption up to the end of Exodus, proposing that Leviticus as a book is meant to answer the question, how does a sinful people approach a holy God in worship? And tonight we've seen just the first part of that answer. We've gone up the first step, and we've seen that to approach God, there's a sacrifice involved. The wages of sin is death. And in dealing with sin, sacrifices must be made vicariously on the behalf of the people with whom God is dealing with those sins. They're offered to make atonement, and those sacrifices are also offered to restore Israel to fellowship with God, symbolically renewing their devotion and sanctifying them as worshipers in God's people. And they're even made to share in a meal with God, being truly united. In these offerings, a wide range of provisions are made so that the people of God can enjoy the wide range of purposes accomplished in them. Christian, all of this is important. Important to know, but important for you. Because all of it serves to point to Christ. In the end, it's nothing but a shadow of his person and his work. He himself died in our stead, making atonement for our sins and offering up his whole body and his whole life for a people. And he invites us to share in his wonderful once-and-for-all offering by sending us his spirit and inviting us to the Lord's table, where we too can be reminded and partaken, be strengthened in that now corruptible union that we share with him. In the end, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was the final offering. He was offered on our behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Your word is an ocean of riches given to us that we can meditate on your goodness, meditate on your fatherly care for us. And in meditating on Leviticus, we can also begin to see the foundations for the work of Jesus Christ, that we can begin to see the 
patterns that he fulfilled in his life and his death. Father, we rejoice in your plan in this, that millennia ago, you set down sacrifices and offerings that would ultimately be fulfilled in your son. And so, Lord, we pray that as we meditate on each of these sacrifices and offerings, as we think about their unique purpose, how they fit together in the life of Israel, that they would each lend themselves to a greater understanding of our life in Christ, of that final sacrifice that he made, that we might grow in maturity and rejoice in praising you in that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.